Hello, welcome to the VJ Hemonk podcast. We are a global open access multimedia channel bringing in cutting edge news and updates in hematological oncology research. Today we'll be discussing the improvement of acute lymphoblastic leukemia patient outcomes. We were lucky enough to attend a roundtable on this topic at the recent International Workshop on Acute Leukemias or IWOL 2019 conference held in Barcelona. Our speakers discuss the fascinating updates in clinical trials, immunotherapy and future treatments for acute leukemia. Joining the discussion is Noel Frey of the University of Pennsylvania, Bianca Santomasso of the Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center and Wendy Stock of the University of Chicago. Hi, so I'm Noel Fry and I'm here with uh, Dr. Wendy Stock and Dr. Bianca Santomoso. And we just finished an interesting session here talking about improving outcomes for patients with acute lymphoblastic leukemia. And I just wanna first start with Wendy. Uh, you went over today the tremendous improvements that we've made in older, younger patients, uh, patients who are treated by adult physicians with an adolescent young adult, adult protocol. And uh, the data that you summarized from a recent cooperative group study was inspiring, but as you pointed out, we can still do better. And so in your opinion, going forward, how can we continue to improve uh, on treatment out outcomes for these young adults with ALL? Yeah, thanks, Noel. Uh, well, you know, I think that one of the big issues is as we talked so much about it at this meeting was how we might be able to potentially improve outcomes without increasing toxicity. Because in the young adult population, the intensive regimen was quite toxic, although the mortality rate was not any higher than expected or nor, nor, no, no higher than um, predicted from the pediatric studies. So. What we're planning to do as we move forward is we're planning to uh, incorporate some of the new agents in different centers, different studies. In the United States, a study led by Dr. Dan D'Angelo for the Alliance and the entire U.S. Cooperative Group mechanism is going to be incorporating inotuzumab into frontline treatment to see whether we can early eradicate MRD, minimal residual disease, and thus improve outcomes since that's been one of the most important uh, prognosticators for outcome. And we believe that adding inotuzumab to frontline treatment will make a difference. That's our hypothesis. And we're going to be testing it in a randomized phase three trial using the backbone that was already so successful at improving event-free and overall survival. Great, great. Um, one of the newer therapies that we talked about today in our session was CAR T-cell CAR therapy, uh, specifically targeting CD19 for patients with relapsed and refractory ALL. And I was able to pre present some of the highlights and the good outcomes, and Bianca had the opportunity to go on the flip side and talk about some of the toxicities. Um, and as a neurologist, you've been able to witness neurotoxicity in CAR T-cell recipients firsthand in addition to cytokine release syndrome. And I was really impressed with one aspect of your talk today, which was um, to b describe and report on a new grading scheme that thought leaders have developed. And I was wondering if you can tell us how you think that might improve the progress of the field going forward. Right, thanks, Noelle. I, I think that um, the, uh, 
I was very pleased that we were all able to come together and put together this uh, grading scheme. One of the problems was that in the, the early trials that were done, there were several different grading schema that were used both for cytokine release syndrome and neurologic toxicity. Especially for neurotoxicity, uh, as you know, having uh, treated these patients as well, it's hard to know what the significant events are, and there's a lot of subjectivity to the grading when you're talking about an encephalopathy. So there was the importance both of um, figuring out what are the important symptoms we need to capture, um, and then also specifically how to grade the encephalopathy component. And so uh, I think that we built on some of the early steps. So obviously there was car the CARTOX um, working group had put together kind of a preliminary um, step. Some of those um, aspects were a little bit uh, cumbersome, you know, requiring CSF opening pressure and measuring papilledema. Um, but they did have an initial kind of pare down 10 question um, exam that you can do at the bedside, basically asking orientation questions, following commands, naming, uh, writing, um, and then an attention, uh, you know, um, counting backwards. And with that 10-point scale, 10 being the perfect score and then zero being um, not a good score, you can get a sense of how encephalopathic that patient is. And we do know from our, our studies at Memorial Sloan Kettering, we had a phase one trial where we saw that um, difficulty with language, specifically expressive aphasia, was one of the first severe um, symptoms. So it can be an early clue, kind of like a, a vital sign check that can be done to, um, to help uh, any uh, practice provider um, be alert to the fact that this patient is probably developing toxicity. So I think that really just it will help harmonize um, the grading, which will then help inform you know, what to do about um, the patients. Um, it's not clear that steroids always need to be given to, at the same intensity or even at all, but I think we first have to start by making sure you and I are talking about the same thing. Um, so I, th I was very pleased, and I, again, I think it's a starting point, and there'll be room for improvement, um, but we needed something. Yeah, no, I think it'll be very helpful. There's so many investigators doing small and now larger trials, and just to be able to define the problem in a way that we make interventions in different trials that can really correlate with outcomes that, that we're all on the same page about. So I think that's a big step forward in the field. And as you said, it's great everybody agreed yes. <laughs> on the system. Well, and the other, the other thing is that we're dealing now with not only with CAR T cells, but with other immune effector cell types as well, and obviously the bispecific antibodies where you can see a similar constellation of symptoms. So the idea is that this grading would not just be CAR T cell specific, but any immune effector cell uh, grading, and so it's it's actually called the immune effector cell right, um, right. Uh, consensus criteria Great. for that reason. Wendy, I wanted to ask uh, you a qu another question. So I think one of the things you highlighted in your talk today is um, the importance of a very effective drug to treat ALL, which is pegasparaginase or an asparaginase-based um, medications. And um, you commented on there are there's a pretty, it's an important drug and there's a differential ability for patients um, to tolerate it. Do you mind summarizing some of those sure. factors? I think that what we have seen and one of the most uh, challenging pieces of giving asparaginase are its longer term toxicities, 
both immediate and several weeks, and sometimes several months actually, in duration. And the most problematic in the adult population has been the liver toxicity that occurs. There's also an encephalopathy actually, interestingly, that mm -hmm. occurs in these patients, especially as we age. And we know that this drug gets more difficult to administer once patients are over the age of 15 to 16 years of age. Part of that may be the body mass index, the increasing obesity, because we've been dosing that drug based on body size and body weight. And so if you give these high doses, perhaps that's the reason that these toxicities are so profound. In addition, it causes steatosis in the liver and liver toxicities are, steatotic livers are increasing with age and with obesity. So we have trouble with that drug. There are many side effects of the drug, but as I said, the one that causes the most consternation among clinicians and patients is the liver toxicity, along with this feeling of malaise that the patients have. And so my hope is that perhaps by giving lower doses of the drug over time and maybe individualizing the dose based on levels of asparaginase, which can now be measured in a commercial test, mm -hmm. uh, we can then tailor the dose of asparaginase appropriately so that we still get asparaginase levels that are therapeutic as defined by previous studies and yet minimize the toxicities. And from some pilot studies that have been done, it looks like that might be the case. And interestingly, in Europe, they tend to use lower doses, even in the pediatric population, than we've used in the United States. And as you know, they have outstandingly good outcomes. So that's my hope about trying to make it a more tolerable drug, because you're absolutely right. It is such an important drug in terms of efficacy in the population of patients with ALL. That's great. It's a drug I have a lot of respect for, which is a way of saying I fear it in some ways. Um, are, are the cooperative group studies um, measuring drug levels? Yeah, so in our new study, we actually, we've reduced the dose uniformly, not dramatically. I think we could have gone down lower, but we were trying to be conservative. We don't want to lose the beneficial effect that we have, and uh, these studies need to be done prospectively. But in this study, prospectively, we are going to be measuring levels. And so we'll get an idea of how high we are and maybe how we could maybe go down and whether or not later we'd have to test whether that truly does correlate with less toxicity. There's some amazing work going on in the medical community. Be the first to discover the latest updates by following us on Twitter at VJHemonk and visiting VJHemonk.com. We're now broadcasting on both Spotify and Apple Podcasts, so join us for the next podcast right from your phone.